Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'll be with you until 6 this evening when the excellent Done by Law program comes on air for a half an hour. But today there's lots happening in the Pacific and who better to explain and inform than journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. The Palestine tragedy. These are the words of Meritus Professor Stuart Rees. The world watches and does nothing. Seymour Hersh first gained recognition in 1969 for exposing the My Lai Massacre and its cover-up during the Vietnam War, for which he received the 1970 Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. And during the 1970s, he covered the Watergate for the New York Times and revealed the clandestine bombing of Cambodia. And later still, the Abu Ghraib prison scandal. And he went on to expose much more. Now the sabotage of the Nord gas pipeline in September last year. We were all told it was Russia did the deed, but a mainstream media blockout of what this important journalist has revealed is definitely happening. We'll be speaking with Dr Alison Bronowski, who's been following this issue, along with the fact that March is the 20th anniversary of the illegal war on Iraq, it's also the time we're supposed to hear about what AUKUS means and a meeting on war powers reform. And as I said, Dr. Alison Bronowski, amongst other things, is the president of the War Powers Reform Group. And it's now one year since the flooding of the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales. Permaculturist Wayne Wadsworth was there. He'd been lived there for quite a few years but he left just soon after and has now a new home in Iron Knob in South Australia in the dry desert. So let's hear how he's got on with his new career, greening the desert and living in a totally different environment. And Mr Kevin Healy, he's here today with his excellent weeks that was. So do stay tuned if you can until 6 this evening and that's Tuesday I'm a weak Jan listener when spare a thought for the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, saving every penny, every penny of the several hundred million they scrape together for their retirement, allowing them to enjoy a very, very early retirement, a very, very early retirement from paying taxes. Not that we're suggesting having all those millions in a super account is a tax dodge, because they assure us they meet all their legal tax obligations. And the frustrating thing about a socialist government, as Lord Rupert of Wapping and the Caring Business Class and the Caring Business Class Coalition Party's chorus, bent on class warfare where there is no class in our classless society other than in the minds of evil unions and long-haired commie greenies, 
easily is very important filthy is rich of will have to spend even more on their tax lawyers and accountants to ensure they can overcome this latest attack on their wealth and continue to meet their legal tax obligations. And what those who can't avoid paying their legal tax obligations extracted from their wages don't realise is that big end of town tax lawyers and tax accountants don't come cheap. It costs to reduce your legal tax obligations to zero. Well, zero plus, because it's important that you pick up more than a little of corporate welfare from the taxes those who can't avoid can't avoid. And the Lord Rupert Media, in its daily oh-so-sincere concern for those struggling as the cost of living soars, tells those struggling they must be concerned at this attack on super savings, super-duper obscene savings. Our homes will be next, leaving us to ponder if these people have up to $400 million in their super account, how much must they have altogether? A thought which explains why we must spare a thought for the poor dears who, after all, have only two and a half years to prepare for this attack on their little retirement next egg. Oh, and another little thought. Those don't come cheap big end-of-town tax lawyers and accountants who advise the filthy rich on how not to pay tax wonder how much tax they pay. One thing is certain. They all meet their legal tax obligations. But problem for the filthy rich don't end there they have to counter a thoroughly nonsensical argument that their price increases and not wages are the cause of those inflationary cost-of-living blowouts. Expressed for them by a true blue Aussie Capitalist Review editorial headline, Excess Profits Not to Blame for Inflation Breakout. Excess Profits in parentheses, because the Capitalist Review, on behalf of the filthiest rich of, knows profits are not excessive, and says that, while caring employers point out wages are the real cause of inflation, showing that slow wage growth is inflationary. Although the Capitalist Review editorial concedes that wages are not causing inflation. So if neither wages nor excess profits, which are not excessive, are causing inflation, then, then, then what is? All this countering a long-haired commie greeny report from the Troubler Aussie Institute's Centre for Future Work, claiming inflation could still be about 2% if the caring business class had not increased prices by $160 billion a year above costs. Leading economics professor Richard Holden, the profits, to smash that assumption with, the report plays into a sense of confusion about the drivers of rapidly rising prices while the clearly confused Institute report was based on nothing more reliable than the facts. Holden the Profits has been a busy little body, separately producing an article explaining that slow wages growth has absolutely nothing to do with the capitalist system, as if some misguided people might think there was some sort of connection or was an intentional policy by the previous coalition co government pointing out that when then economic guru Matthias Rotten Tudor describes suppressing wages as a deliberate design feature, he did not mean suppressing wages was a deliberate design feature. Richard didn't tell us what Matthias did mean, but 
Real wages grew slowly in most advanced economies during the 2010s, and the average real wage for Americans did not increase for the four decades up to 2020. Slowing growth in wages is an international phenomenon. So unless there's some coordinated international neoliberal conspiracy to screw over workers, we must look elsewhere for the diagnosis and solution to slow wages growth. Given Richard is an intelligent economics professor who, unlike us, well, certainly me, listener, I won't speak for you, understands the intricacies of the greatest little economic order of them all, heaven forbid that some economic ignoramuses might think there just might be some coordinated international neoliberal conspiracy to screw over workers. Or, as those caring business class practitioners who argue wages are the cause of inflation point out, given wages are causing our soaring inflation, imagine how bad inflation would be if wages were actually increasing. Oh, Richard's solution, given neoliberal capitalism is totally innocent and would never dream of screwing over workers, productivity. Workers must work harder. My word, there's an original thought. Original thoughts from Woodside with Prophet Supremo Pego Neil before dollar signs as she announced a record $6.5 billion record profit, like investing more and more across the globe in fossils, declaring there is no need for True Blue Aussie to adopt Europe's stronger anti-fossil regulations, and asserting a super-duper obscene windfall profits tax on fossils like Woodside with would be a disincentive to invest in more and more fossils and therefore hurt all true blue Aussies. Although a bit more detail on that one wouldn't have hurt. She, she probably took for granted we'd know she meant all true blue Aussies like her and the other fossils. She did say she believed shareholders supported Woodside with climate policy, uh, which is profit. We support a climate of record profit 100%. But, but P, what about climate change, if there is such a thing? We do not expect the climate of profit to change, so I can assure you, you have nothing to worry about. As an aside, like all the big fossils causing the problem, Woodside with assures us it supports net zero emissions by 2050, but hell, fossils are fetching record prices and there's plenty of time to do something about that. Support like buy a tree in a rainforest somewhere until the logging industry turns up to enjoy its record profits. And anyway, net zero emissions does not mean zero emissions. Zero emissions would hurt all of us, all true Luazis. Pig expressed her concern for all of us. Iconoclastically, Greenpeace recently ran a full-page ad, Woodside with profits Trublawazi businesses, or wants Trublawazi businesses, to foot its pollution bill. Don't let Woodside with write Trublawazi's climate policy. As if. What disrespect for a great Trublawazi icon doing its bit for all of us. And another Supremo showing the value of women behaving like men, A.G. Hell for the Planet Supremo Patricia McCondomsey, said the path to net zero must be realistic. Uh, realistic, Patricia, what would be realistic? We asked the head of Trublawazi's biggest coal-fired polluter. Let me say it would be unrealistic if we had to shut down our coal-fired generators. 
Patricia said AG Hill 4 was united in our vision for the clean energy future for true blue Aussie. Well, as long as you don't have to stop polluting? Exactly. A former senior public servant, now a senior academic, told the robo-debt inquiry, then Minister Stupid Robots, dismissed her recommendation the scheme should be scrapped based on the Solicitor General's advice it was illegal. That's just an opinion, Stupid lived up to his name. Two days after her evidence, Stupid told the inquiry he couldn't quite recall that conversation. It's contagious, isn't it, the way these people have memory losses the moment they hit the witness box, blaming the public service for keeping them ignorant, <laughs> as if they're to blame. Very unfair, that. And despite the contemporary interviews lauding the scheme, he said he had doubts about it, but at the time couldn't express his personal thoughts. The significance of that, of course, that he considers he is capable of thought. Although, if he is, that could be the problem, as this episode is just one more highlight in Stupid's illustrious ministerial career. Given Stupid kept turning up as a minister for being a minister, it does leave us to ponder the bottomless depths of incompetence of those who didn't make it. Stupid didn't just dismiss the public servant's warning about the illegality, he then dismissed her altogether for telling him what he didn't want to hear, and which he told the her most or his most gracious Majesty Commission he didn't hear. In a US of the UN of the US of the World defamation case against surprise surprise, Lord Rupert of Wapping's faux news, Lord Rupert admitted Foe had strongly argued that former US of Supremo Donald Trample the Poor had won the election and been robbed. Interviewing balanced observers like Donald's lawyers, such as Rudy Giuliani, and had perpetrated other conspiracy theories, and now says in hindsight he wishes he had prevented it. Uh, when did this wish strike you, Lord Rupert? Uh, when the defamation suit arrived. But the episode shows Lord Rupert does not intervene with his team of balanced, for want of a better word, journalists. I don't have to. They know exactly what I want them to say, or else. As speculation continues on whether former Sydney Theatre Company artistic director Kate Blanchett will win another Oscar, the company has appointed its new chairperson, the airline which used to be our airline supremo, Alan Joystick. As a result, roles will be contracted out as a cost-cutting measure, although some of the contracted employees may have had some acting experience, and audiences will discover at the end of every performance the theatre has lost their handbags, wallets, coats and other possessions. Oh, and performances will be cancelled or run excessively late due to circumstances outside Alan's control. Finally, like the big fossil polluters insisting they must continue to pollute for the good of all of us, as evil unions call for an immediate end to cut stone silicosis killing and injuring workers, with Zion-based Caesar stoned to death featuring the company fought back with a full-page ad, a safe and sustainable stone industry, informing us a ban will not solve the issue of silicosis, and it's devoted to a safe and sustainable industry. Installed bench tops are entirely safe, it states. Nothing like truth in advertising. Sure, sure, it's safe. After the workers have caught silicosis, making it safe. 
Let's prove its argument. Let the Caesar stone to death boardroom spend 12 months cutting the stone themselves, do the actual work themselves. We're sure they'd love to. After all, it's safe and sustainable. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy, and that was his week that was. And it's usually at this time that I say, listen to Kevin tomorrow morning for his program, City Limits. But as tomorrow is International Women's Day, it'll be all women on the station tomorrow, producing, presenting, running the station. So Kevin is having a holiday. But to stay tuned to 3CR and enjoy the programs that you'll hear tomorrow on International Women's Day. Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. Coming to 3CR on the 13th of March is Rainbows Don't Fade with Age. Rainbows Don't Fade with Age, presented by VELS LGBTI Aging and Age Care, sharing stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI plus people. Rainbows Don't Fade with Age on Mondays at 2pm every fortnight on 3CR. CCR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Next on Tuesday Home Time, journalist and researcher and working with Ireland's Business Magazine, Nick McClellan.
The heading of a recent article by Your Good Self, Nick, says, Can Washington fund its specific pledges? So, what are those pledges and when were they made and by whom? So, in recent years, US President Joe Biden has made a series of commitments and pledges at uh, international summits um, that have real importance for Pacific Island countries. The obvious one is around issues of climate change, but also around uh, core issues like fisheries, uh, nuclear developments and so on. I'll give a few examples of the sort of things that have been put forward. Uh, April 2021, Biden hosted a, a leaders' summit on climate action. You know, fairly early in his administration, uh, after the defeat of Donald Trump um, in the 2020 elections, Biden wanted to show that the United States is back, uh, is committed to climate action, and he made a series of pledges, and one of those was that the U.S. would double its climate finance, um, money provided to address mitigation adaptation around the world, particularly in developing countries, and triple its adaptation funding. That's money to adapt to the adverse effects of climate change. And so basically, the U.S. was promising that they would give $11.4 billion a year, every year, by 2024. For climate finance. It's a big commitment. Similarly, um, the US has made a series of commitments to Pacific Island countries directly. In July last year, July 2022, Vice President Kamala Harris made a video address to the Pacific Islands Forum as they met uh, at their leaders' summit, and she pledged significant funding for the Pacific, particularly uh, a pledge to increase funding for the South Pacific Tuna Treaty, this is an agreement um, between the United States and Pacific Island countries that dates back to the early 1980s. The U.S. said that they would increase their funding significantly to $60 million a year over the next decade. So that's $600 million U.S. million, a major pledge. Similarly, in September last year, Biden hosted a meeting at the White House and the U.S. administration, together with Forum Island leaders, issued a statement uh, making a number of commitments around... Uh, uh, climate action and so on. So all of these are, are big note pledges on, you know, issues of great concern to our Pacific Island neighbours. Action on climate change, particularly adaptation to the adverse effects of climate, protecting tuna fisheries uh, and properly managing that's incredible resource for island countries with their vast exclusive economic zones and addressing issues like uh, the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty, the main regional denuclearisation uh, initiative. All sounds good great pledges, but um, as uh, the movie Jerry Maguire once said, um, show me the money. Where is the, the funding for this? Because, of course, under the American system, the U.S. Congress, the House of Reps and the Senate have to pass the money to meet the sort of pledges that come from the, uh, the presidential administration. And how far have they got? Not very far. <laughs> um, it's really uh, striking. And I um, just interviewed uh, Congressman Ed Case, U.S. Congressman in the House of Representatives, uh, representing the first district in Hawaii. That's uh, uh, on the island of Oahu, which is where uh, Pearl Harbor is, a major U.S. naval base. Um, Ed Case is the co-founder of the Pacific Island Caucus within the U.S. Congress. Uh, he's one of a number, a small number of uh, congressmen and women who recognise, you know, the importance of engaging with the Pacific. The Americans, of course, being concerned about rising Chinese influence in the Pacific Islands. And Case talked about uh, the challenge of getting resources through 
the uh, the Congress to specifically directed at the region. One of the things that's really striking is that the Biden administration um, over the last year has passed a number of key pieces of legislation, particularly directed at domestic politics. The Inflation Reduction Act, which passed in August last year, has a significant investment in green technologies, in um, uh, renewable energy, uh, in computing and uh, other technological areas and so on. And this is uh, also directed at infrastructure. Um, you know, the United States has privatized lots of public infrastructure over many years, and this is an attempt to basically rebuild domestic infrastructure and to put some green content in that. So it's a significant piece of legislation. However, while it guarantees billions of dollars for infrastructure, for renewable energy technology and climate programs within the United States, it's got nothing for countries overseas. So people were hoping that other legislation later in the year might provide something for developing countries that are at the forefront of the adverse effects of climate change. And that came at the end of the year, just a few days um, after Christmas, 29th of December, President Biden signed a, an omnibus appropriations bill. Basically, after the US midterm elections in November, the Republican Party gained a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. Biden did well to hold a majority uh, in the Senate, so still uh, did much better than many commentators were expecting. But the narrow loss of the House to the Republicans uh, means that he was desperate to get a funding bill through, knowing that the House um, under you know, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, would block action around core issues like climate change. So in December, Biden signed a $1.7 trillion Consolidated Appropriations Act. $1.7 trillion, not billion dollars. It's a big amount of money. Within that, there's $1.8 billion for the Indo-Pacific strategy, the United States strategy for our part of the world. And I, you know, in my interview with Ed Case, uh, you know, burrowed down into these figures because what's striking is despite all the rhetoric and, you know, this was a major achievement, a lot of the financing is going into programs that aren't the key priorities coming from Pacific Island countries. What's been the reaction from Pacific leaders to this inaction? Well, they haven't said much yet because there's a lot of uh, support for the US getting more engaged in the region. Um, most Pacific Island countries have a policy of friends to all, enemies to none. Uh, there are four countries aligned with Taiwan rather than China, but for most um, countries, China is a, a major trading partner. And as uh, you know, anyone who reads the papers knows that China's been very active on the diplomatic, security, trade front. At the same time, people are eager to, you know, build links with Australia, with the United States, with Japan, with other countries, not wanting to choose sides in the geopolitical contest. So there hadn't been a lot of criticism of the U.S., but behind the scenes, I think there's a lot of anxiety. And one example is, as I mentioned, Vice President Harris pledged you know, $600 million over the next decade for the U.S. commitments to the South Pacific Tuna Treaty. You know, it's a legally binding international treaty, um, but Congress didn't get that money through uh, by the end of last year. So the 117th Congress has ended. We're now into the 118th U.S. Congress, and they basically got to start again um, seeking the money for the South Pacific Tuna Treaty. Now, already the U.S. financial year runs from September to October, so we're you know, almost half the way through the financial year and there's no money on the table for the Tuna Treaty. And this is really significant because 
you know, uh, marine fisheries, uh, tuna particularly, is an incredible resource for island countries as they get royalties and revenues from deep water fishing nations. So there was a big splash when Kamala Harris, I was at the forum in July and September in Suva, Fiji. And Harris, you know, was given a special uh, a platform to talk on video to the members, you know, made a lot of commitments. And yet here we are, you know, nine months later, US Congress still hasn't delivered. And I think that's a great concern for many Pacific Island countries. And that's particularly true on the issue of climate change. As everyone knows, climate is the core issue facing the Pacific Islands. Just uh, last month, the Forum Secretariat uh, in Suva released the Outlook Report for Pacific Security Issues. Um, it highlighted a broad range of regional security issues, but said directly, and I quote, climate change remains the region's single greatest security threat. Climate is the single greatest security threat. Pacific Island countries would hope that partners, be it China, the United States, Australia, whoever, would be putting resources into addressing that single greatest security threat. Once again, that massive omnibus bill put forward by the United States in December, which is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, doesn't really take on that challenge. For example, the Biden administration asked for $1.6 billion dollars for the Green Climate Fund. This is a global mechanism set up under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change to channel money towards mitigation, adaptation, and so on. Uh, many Pacific Island countries, most Pacific, independent Pacific Island countries, have tapped some money from this global climate finance mechanism. So the Biden administration wanted to, you know, re-establish commitments to the, uh, uh, the Green Climate Fund. You know, the Obama administration pledged $3 billion dollars to this global mechanism. Only a billion dollars got out the door through the US Congress before Donald Trump came in, and Trump just cancelled the last two-thirds of the American pledge. He just said, we're not going to give any money. Biden asked to restart that process with $1.6 billion. The US Congress didn't give him anything. And with the Republicans in control of the House, that's not going to happen in the next uh, uh, short period. So here you've got a significant fund um, that addresses core concerns around climate change, and the U.S. talked big. So when Biden, you know, just in 2021, pledged that they would increase their climate finance, that they would double their climate finance by 2024, which, as we know, is not that far away, it's just not going to happen. And so, you know, these summits, uh, there's a lot of headlines, a lot of press releases, but the real question is, where do you follow through? And that's really stark in this omnibus appropriations bill, $1.7 trillion that was passed for this financial year in, in the US. It's a big amount of money. There's only $270 million for adaptation programs, climate adaptation programs around the world. And there is in the bill, I quote, language recommending no less than $20 million for climate resilient development and climate mitigation and adaptation in the Pacific Islands. So in a $1.7 trillion, trillion, not billion, dollar bill, they've put no less than $20 million for the Pacific. Now spread across all the Forum Island countries, $20 million just won't go very far. And I think this is a, a, a real problem, that there's not a, not a commitment to the priorities of, uh, of island countries, despite all the talk. Yes, but Nick, how much of that money is going to military hardware, etc., for the Pacific? Enormous amounts. 
and that's the stark difference. Um, clear to everyone that um, under the AUKUS partnership, um, Australia and Japan, uh, United Kingdom, are working with the United States to boost military spending in the region. Um, and one of the striking things that you see in this funding package is an incredible range of initiatives for Pacific Islands, particularly in the northern Micronesian countries under US influence, where amazing amounts of money. And I sort of spent some time reading through the bill, and you can see, you know, the focus on national security, military spending is, is far outweighs any commitment to other security concerns. So the bill includes, uh, just for this year, financial year, up until October, $393 million for missile defense systems in Guam against possible missile attacks against U.S. bases in Guam, like Anderson Air Force Base or APRA Harbor Naval Base. There's funding for two uh, Virginia-class nuclear attack submarines, and these uh, nuclear subs will be maintained at the Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard, which is in Oahu, in Hawaii. They're building at that naval shipyard a $3.5 billion dry dock that can be used to service nuclear submarines. Just this year, there's $620-odd million going towards the cost of this new $3.5 billion installation at, uh, at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. There's $164 million for the X-Band radar, which is a defense radar operating out of Hawaii. And there's improvements to a whole series of military bases in Hawaii. $113 million to build a new magazine for missiles at uh, Pearl Harbor Hickam. $80-odd million for a new Marine Corps barracks. $111 million for Schofield Barracks, which is the U.S. Army barracks in Hawaii. Nearly $30 million even for the National Guard. So the National Guard Center at Kapolei, Hawaii, gets more money than the climate adaptation funds for Pacific Island countries. And so you can see this trend where, despite the talk about commitment to Pacific Island priorities around fisheries, around climate and so on, the U.S. Congress is not following through on the rhetoric. And so when you read a lot of the Australian headlines, it's about how the U.S. is back. They're really committed to the region. But when you burrow down into the detail, and sorry about all the figures, but it's pretty clear, there's a lot of money for military spending and not a lot of money for climate action. And yet the Pacific Islands says that climate change is the greatest single security threat to the region. And I'd imagine, Nick, that China is watching closely what's happening or what's not happening. Absolutely. And part of this is, is particularly because, you know, this is guided. This is not accidental. You know, just uh, in September, as I mentioned, the White House hosted a, a major summit for Pacific Island countries. They issued, you know, documents and declarations which pledged support for Pacific Island uh, priorities. But the following month, in October, uh, the Biden administration issued its first national security strategy. And that's, uh, you know, the framework for U.S. national security policy. And surprise, surprise, the rhetoric in that document is much more focused on China uh, than the commitments that they made to the Pacific Islands. Indeed, China's not mentioned in the declaration that came out of the White House Pacific Summit. And, you know, the, the national security strategy is pretty clear. It argues that the U.S. must invest at home and align with allies in order to, quote, outcompete the People's Republic of China in the technological, economic, political, military, intelligence and global governance domain. So, you know, there's talk of competition with China 
across all spheres of activity, technology, economics, politics, military, intelligence sharing, and global governance, the UN, other multilateral agencies, and so on. And it says that the United States will prioritize maintaining, quote, an enduring competitive edge over the People's Republic of China while constraining a still profoundly dangerous Russia. So the core focus of the national security strategy is, of course, out-competing China while constraining Russia. Um, and you can see that with the massive investment from European countries and other NATO members to uh, back the Ukrainians against Russian aggression and the uh, illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine in February last year. And what's striking about this this whole area is that the, given the weakness of the United States, their own internal domestic problems, there's a major focus on building up partners, be it through NATO in Europe or through AUKUS and other mechanisms in the Pacific to assist the US in this strategy. The Biden administration's national security strategy says clearly that one of the key tactics uh, to, to achieve this broad strategy is to create, once again I quote, a latticework of strong, resilient and mutually reinforcing relationships. So basically building up alliances and partnerships. And they list a whole range of bodies, including AUKUS, the Australia-United Kingdom-US partnership created in 2021, NATO in Europe, the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, that's the five Anglosphere countries, United States, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, who share intelligence uh, operations around the world, uh, particularly uh, satellite monitoring and uh, um, tapping uh, telephone and communications and so on. And also the Quad, that's the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is um, Australia, United States, Japan and India. This latticework of mutually reinforcing relationships, AUKUS, NATO, Five Eyes, Quad and more, is designed to build up uh, networks rather than formal alliances against China. And so that, that's the driver of US policy. And there's a recognition that that has to extend to the Pacific Islands simply because of the uh, um, strategic effort that China has been placing to build trade, political, military ties with Pacific Island countries. But the cost of all this, Nick, to the people of America, it must be astronomical. The, you hear stories about inner cities in America are crumbling, the unemployment, people don't have housing, they don't have enough proper food to eat, and yet this is going on all over the world with the United States. And that's, um, you know, people are very aware of that internationally. One of the things that's striking is that Pacific Island countries have seen these pledges before. You know, going back to the days of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, back in, you know, President Bush the Elder pledged a joint commercial commission for the Pacific, which never got off the ground. Barack Obama famously talked about a pivot to the Pacific, and he sent uh, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to the Cook Islands in 2012, and she made a shopping list of pledges, pledges that have never been fulfilled. You know, and here we are more than a decade later, and... Uh, you know, the leaders are meeting again in the Cook Islands uh, later this year for the annual uh, Pacific Islands Forum uh, leaders meeting. Um, the Americans could recycle their um, pledges from 2012 because many of them still haven't been met. One example is, uh, you know, the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty. Back in 1985, uh, nearly 40 years ago, Pacific Island countries, including Australia and New Zealand, signed the Spinfizz Treaty, this uh, uh, nuclear free, weapons-free zone in the South Pacific. 
and as well as parties in that zone uh, saying that they're never going to develop nuclear weapons, never allowed nuclear weapons to be stationed on their soil. It also has protocols that ask the major nuclear weapons powers to sign um, saying that they won't deploy nuclear weapons in, in territories of state parties. So Russia and China signed back in the 1986-87. France and Britain, the United States signed the, the protocols after the end of French nuclear testing in 1996. And all those four major powers, Russia, China, Britain, France, have ratified, you know, pledging under international law that they will abide by the treaty. The United States is the only major power that hasn't done so. It hasn't ratified the SPINFIS protocols. So you have this situation where President Obama in 2011 called on the U.S. Congress to uh, pass legislation ratifying this international disarmament treaty created at the height of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, and the U.S. has failed to do so since the treaty was first signed in 1985. And, and so the sort of commitments that the United States is making around militarization is significant at a time where the geopolitical contest is with China in our part of the world as much as with Russia. The Pacific leaders are meeting at the moment, or will be soon. Do you think you'd like to be a fly on the wall with that meeting? Well, Pacific leaders had a special summit um, over the weekend, quite an important meeting because it's brought uh, together um, Micronesian countries from the north of the Pacific, including the three what are called freely associated states with the United States, three um, countries, Marshalls, FSM, Palau, that have a a compact and agreement of free association with the U.S. Kiribati, too, has returned to the fold, and leaders will meet again later this year um, in the Cook Islands. There's a, you know, a full agenda. But I think, um, you know, everyone is, is looking towards, um, you know, whether countries will meet their pledges of commitments. And the Labor Party in Australia, since their election um, in 2022, has been very active in the Pacific, meeting a lot of pledges that were made by the Scott Morrison government but never really followed through. And so you've seen uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong, uh, Minister for the Pacific uh, Pat Conroy, and indeed Prime Minister Albanese actively travelling the region. There's a particular focus, though, on uh, military security and defence operations as much as broader programs, of which there are many, around health, around climate, around education, around other social and human development programs. The, there's been a lot of commitment to uh, broader security agendas as very much part of this push by the United States and its uh, allies and partners uh, to essentially constrain and compete with China in this part of the world. Just as an aside, Nick, new government in Fiji, how stable do you believe it is? The government in Fiji under Prime Minister Sitivina Rambuka has a very narrow majority in Parliament. It's a coalition government as well, with uh, three parties, including Rambuka's People's Alliance, uh, the National Federation Party, um, which is uh, one of the oldest political parties in the whole Pacific and uh, has a large support base amongst Indo-Fijian voters, and also a smaller party, Sodelpa. Sodelpa, Rambuka used to be the leader of Sodelpa, but split from the party and uh, took away a large number of its politicians and members. When Sudelpa agreed to back um, uh, Rambuka as Prime Minister in this uh, very evenly divided parliament uh, with 26 seats for the outgoing Fiji First Government, uh, together with 26 for the, the new coalition, the three seats from uh, Sudelpa swung the balance. 
but even uh, Sadelpa's own internal members were quite divided about whether they should back uh, Bainimarama's party, Fiji First, or whether they should back Rambuka. So the government is holding a pretty narrow majority in the House. If there were defections from Sadelpa for any reasons, that will um, uh, cause problems. You know, there's a, a lot of debate um, about things. The government's done a lot of positive things. Um, just one community support. They pledged to review, uh, for example, the Fiji First Media Decree, um, which was widely criticised by journalists and media organisations. Uh, they let back Padma Lal, who was uh, the wife of the late Bridge Lal, a famous Fijian historian who had gotten on the wrong side of Bainimarama. Bridge, who died in Australia, and his wife Padma have been banned from Fiji. You know, a number of steps to, to rebuild relations with people who'd been on the outer with the previous government. At the same time, uh, there's a lot of concern um, about the solidity of the government. Politics in the Pacific is um, plays out, uh, um, you know, constantly. And, uh, you know, the, the government's done got a lot of community support so far. But uh, like all governments, they have to deliver on things that matter to people. And Fiji, having gone through two tough years with the COVID pandemic, been badly affected by energy prices because of the war in Europe um, and food prices and so on, the new government's got real challenges to provide uh, benefits to ordinary people um, around hip pocket issues. So it's very early in the government. Uh, Rumbook is doing really well. Um, he was very confident as uh, the current chair of the Pacific Islands Forum, finishing off negotiations that Bainimarama began, bring Kiribati back to the forum fold. But, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be many challenges for the government ahead and indeed for the region because there are some real structural questions on the global stage and things not looking good. OECD countries pledged $100 billion a year in climate finance by 2020. They've missed that target. Are they going to miss the target again in 2023 when they meet uh, again uh, at the, you know, in UAE? UAE government has appointed a, an oil company executive as chair of the next climate uh, negotiations, which is not a good sign following the, the disaster last year in, in Egypt. So there's uh, a lot of challenges for Pacific Island countries around the environment, around development finance, uh, around climate action, there's a way to go. And just finally, Nick, the consequences, if any, of the suspension of Bani Marana? During the previous parliament, um, the Fiji First Government under Prime Minister Bani Marama and his uh, deputy, uh, Ayaz Sayed Kayum, um, often used parliamentary tactics to suspend opposition members um, from the parliament. And so a number of um, opposition politicians were suspended for short or even longer periods under the previous government, despite um, the new Rambuka-led government in Fiji saying that they would bring a new tone uh, uh, to parliamentary proceedings. They proceeded to do some payback in the same way. Bainimarama was uh, criticised for um, actually criticising in a parliamentary speech the president, uh, the ceremonial leader of the country, um, he was accused of sedition, judged very quickly, and thrown out of Parliament for three years. We'll see how that plays out, because Bainimarama is still the official leader of the uh, Fiji First Party. There's going to be uh, uh, real, real questions about whether the Rambuka government is going to meet its rhetoric about new beginnings, a new style of operating, a new more open form of government, when uh, within weeks of Parliament starting, uh, the first thing they do is throw out the opposition leader. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you.
Criminal Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Monday, February 27th to Friday, March 10, Uruk is holding public hearings with First Peoples witnesses who have experienced injustice in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast. 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strength and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book We're here now from Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees on the tragedy of Palestine. As Stuart writes, the world watches and does nothing. I mean, when you think over the many, many decades now of what the Palestinians have suffered under the Israeli forces, how would you judge the situation there at the moment? 
emotionally and, and politically at several le levels. It's one of utter despair. It's what I would call the nihilism of violence. In other words, you just dig and dig a darker, darker hole. It's about the impoverishment and the powerlessness of, of all sorts of politicians, not just the wretched extreme right wing in the Israeli government, but the, um, the undue power given to the, the wretched settlers and the terrible cowardice of leaders in the international community. Their cowardice has really colluded with the cruelty to Palestinians since the Balfour Declaration in 1917. I'm not sure where to go with this, except that by the end of this interview, we might have found a chink of hope. So are we talking about the Holocaust, that people feel still feel guilty, so they're, they're allowing all this to happen because of so-called guilt? Yeah, I mean, there's something which um, a wonderful um, American historian calls the Holocaust industry. I mean, the Holocaust was a terrible, terrible event. In fact, but all sorts of other Holocausts, not least Stalin's starving of the Ukrainian people, have occurred. So we can't, we can't keep milking them to justify the terrible violence to a whole people, namely the Palestinians. I can't find any justification for any citizen of Australia, for example, to find one iota of thought to justify how the Israeli government and settlers and police and army behave towards the Palestinians. I can't see under what circumstances, unless they say that murder and destruction are a good idea, I can't see what possible rationale there could be for any continued support of the way um, apartheid, racist, violent Israel behaves. When you look at what happened in South Africa and the decades and decades it took to oust that brutal regime. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, my good friend, the late Archbishop Tutu, said, of course, there is no comparison between Israel, Palestine and South Africa. Uh, it's much worse. Much, it was and has been much more, much worse in um, Israel, Palestine than it was in South Africa. We've got this brutal occupation lasting for 70 or more years. You've got the siege of Gaza into the 16th or 17th year. And you see, South Africa eventually found de Klerk and Mandela who established some sort of trust and rapport. There's no, there's no such leadership anywhere among the Israelis or the Palestinians. Among the Israelis, you've got the dreadful man for all seasons, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the absolute racists that are in his cabinet, Ben Gavir and Smotrich. And then you've got the political stupidity of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, who, who don't, don't appear to communicate with one another. And on the sidelines, you've got the Americans pretending to be the honest broker when they never have been. That lack of leadership, that lack of vision, that lack of respect for international law, for the Geneva Convention, explains it all. Well, you would ask why. What's happening in this world of ours that something like this is allowed to happen? People say, well, yeah. it's, people say, oh, well, it's America's white colony amongst um, the Arab people in the Middle East. 
but there's got to be a better ex- explanation than that for the cruelty. I mean, the cruelty has centuries of momentum behind it, and it's a cruelty born of one one phenomenon, namely that people who who think they're superior, once they've defined other people as inferior or even as not existing, then um, that seems to give them a blank check to be as cruel and violent as possible. And that really tells us about an appallingly lazy, one-dimensional, destructive way of thinking. Uh, The challenge for all of us is to change the way we think and thereby the way we act. That's the the, the issue. And the, the hub of this question about the way we think concerns the exercise of power. It is intellectually, spiritually, politically lazy to behave as though power is only one-dimensional exercise from the top down, seeking only the compliance of weaker people. And the only chance for life on Earth is to move to a completely different way of thinking about and exercising power. That's, that's my diagnosis. But when you realise how many millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions that have been pumped into that tiny country that is now Israel to keep it afloat, both by Americans, the Europeans, and I'm quite sure Australia is in there helping them, and they're sending all this money, and they're helping them to keep it armed to put down a people whose land it is. Yeah, I mean, the other point you make is a good one. I mean, the pouring in of money, it's as though money equals security. On the contrary, if it was really democracy, if it really respected human rights, if it really respected the self-determination rights of the Palestinian people, it would be a very secure part of the Middle East. It would might even spread those values to uh, dictatorial Arab states. That's, that's the form of, but the Americans don't seem to understand that. That's partly why they are a, a failed state themselves. That's partly why America is so riddled with, with violence in just about every walk of life. And added more recently to the, um, to violence, we've got the false claims, the, the concern that truth doesn't matter one bit. I mean, even the, the protests in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem about Saving democracy are, are a giant contract in the sense that Israel has never been a democracy. And just to point out that if only those Israelis were there demonstrating against the government in support of the Palestinians, it would be a totally different story. Absolutely. I mean, there are, there are disenchanted, brave Israelis who, who know that but they are they're diminishing and, and their power ever since the so-called labor left in Israel had become almost castrated, made irrelevant, then all that's happened is this awful authoritarian shift to the right, which which basically says look, you know, violence violence is a solution for everything. The Australian government has been very silent on what's happening 
at the moment and what's been sure, happening sure. for a good I, while? I don't understand the silence of, um, of the Australian government. I mean, in a way, there's a huge opportunity to uh, encourage every Australian federal politicians have changed their attitude toward their understanding of Israel in the sense that we are enthusiastic supporters of the Ukrainians' war against the Russians. But we completely ignore the very justified protests of Palestinians against their oppression by Israel. I think I may have mentioned to you before, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that... Um, Israel's attitude towards the Palestinians is no different from Putin's attitude towards uh, the Ukrainians. In one sense, Putin argues they don't exist. The Israeli leaders have argued the Palestinians don't exist. The Putin leadership and the Israeli leadership think that their security is uh, achieved by completely eliminating a whole people. There's not much difference. And, And in a way... Their, and this is, I'm going to be very careful here, their attitudes are, are fascist, Nazi-like, both Putin and the leadership of, um, uh, of the current Israeli government. You're a writer, Stuart. What's your feeling now of what's happening with the Adelaide Writers' Festival in the pressure to exclude two Palestinian writers? from that festival? Well, two things. It's about time this knee-jerk Zionist reaction every time we give oxygen to to, to Palestinian stories and to Palestinian perspectives. It ought to stop. It's almost as though it's a a written obligation, like as though they've signed a contract. The, The Zionists have signed a contract that as soon as the word Palestine is even mentioned, they have an obligation to to stifle it, to stop. So I'm glad that Louise Adler and others are holding the line and saying, of course, we need to hear from these writers. I think the two writers have compromised themselves a bit with what looks like some silly commentary about Ukraine. This, This carrying on about Ukraine having been dominated by Nazi leadership, well... So is America. I've been to Russia. The neo-Nazis are resplendent across that massive continent. I'm sure we could um, dig out certain fascist-like movements in Australia. So that's a bit unfortunate. But having said that, we, we should hear nobody's perfect, nobody's completely pure. These two significant writers should be heard. This push to get the IHRA in universities in Australia. And you experienced something similar to this when you were there. Yes. I mean, although at the moment, Sydney University seems to be the, uh, one of the few institutions where it doesn't look as though they dare to try to get the um, Sydney to adopt it. Now, I think, um, well, Melbourne, Melbourne and Monash have obviously adopted it. I think Macquarie has. Look, it's intellectually so weak, the, the acceptance of this dreadful definition, a definition that uh, really precludes criticism of the state of Israel. By adopting it, these so-called intellectual institutions 
are saying that the awful violence, the racist, apartheid, fascist policies of the state of Israel is perfectly okay because we're not we're not supposed to criticise them. This, you know, it's Humpty Dumpty telling Alice things mean what I say they mean. In other words, anything anything that's slightly critical can be can be called anti-Semitic. It's a Humpty Dumpty perspective. It's only out of fear, fear presumably of, I don't know, losing support or losing patronage, I'm not sure, uh, that prompts the leaders of, of local government, of universities, of, of the ALP, to accept this definition. It's, um, it's lazy, the acceptance. It's intellectually mediocre. And if I was being generous, I might give the people who've made that assessment, I don't know, four out of ten at the best. I have a sense of disgust. I'm not sure what to do about it at the moment. There have been people who've written to Melbourne University to say this is absurd. I'm not sure how to to affect the um, values of people in high places. I'm still struggling with that one. Well, finally, Stuart... What can you say to your Palestinian friends, both in Palestine and here in Australia? Well, I, I think two things. First of all, we have to, we will continue to support your rights to self-determination, your rights to uh, a common humanity. But the second thing I'd say is that we desperately need a massive rethink about the um, about the future. I mean, if I if I was still at the university, if I was still director of the of the Peace Foundation, I think I'd be on a plane to um, Jerusalem and Ramallah tomorrow to talk to all the leadership groups in in that part of the world. Um, so, but those are the two things. One is to continue to support them, and secondly, to say we need a massive rethink about um, what this part of the world is going to look like in the next ten years. And the need to support young Palestinians coming up to take the mantle. Yeah, we need to be we need to be in support of them at every possible turn. I'm taking one such person to um, dinner in Sydney on on Sunday to to discuss precisely that sort of question. Thank you so much again. Okay, Jan. Lovely to talk. You've been listening to Professor Emeritus. Stuart Ress, human rights activist. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 
3CR Radical Radio. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. United States investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch first gained recognition in 1969 for exposing the My Lai Massacre and its cover-up during the Vietnam War, for which he received the 1970 Pulitzer Prize for international reporting, and he's continued on with many more scandals exposed. Last month, he revealed that the US Navy was behind the Nord Stream pipeline blast in September 2022. But, surprise, surprise, the Western media, including Australia, has what has been described as a media blackout on his exposure. And in addition, the White House has dismissed his report as utterly false and complete fiction. But why has Australian media not told about his expose? Has the D notice returned? That is a question asked by Dr Alison Bronowski, AM, former diplomat, author and academic, and president of Australians for War Powers Reform. Alison, let's focus for a few minutes on Seymour Hirsch. been around for years and years and years. He has such a long pedigree. He's very good at investigative journalism, which seems to have been given up by a lot of other people. He, for instance, was responsible for revealing the My Lai Massacre. He was responsible for revealing Abu Ghraib, the torture by Americans of captives in Iraq. Uh, He's done a few others since then. But this latest one, many people are regarding the Nord Stream revelation as probably his best work yet. What has he actually found? What he found was that the two Nord Stream pipelines, so-called, one of them only recently finished, uh, the other one having been in operation for a while, bringing Russian gas to Germany under the Baltic Sea, they had been blown up. Actually, there are four and three had been blown up. And there was a a plume of gas visible on the Baltic Sea. Everybody was alarmed by this, not only the pollution, but the question of who did it. Now, people who are fond of pointing the finger uh, at Russia for absolutely everything these days did that straight away without being able to explain why it was that Russia which owns 40% of the pipelines, together with a Swiss company and others, why it is that Russia should want to blow up its own pipeline and jeopardise its own export market of gas to Germany, particularly with the winter about to come. That all sort of went a bit quiet, and nobody seemed to know anything more about it until Seymour Hirsch brought this story out in early February, saying that he had a source. By the way, Seymour Hirsch has often gotten into trouble for having unnamed sources inside 
neurodiversity defense establishment. And he's done that again this time. And he's, he just says, look, you have to trust me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this if it wasn't true. Furthermore, I check it with other sources and they confirm it, he says. But he doesn't name those either. Anyway, having done that, Imor Hirsch said that what had happened, according to his source, was that for months the plan to do this had been activated in the United States by the president himself, by Biden. And it was Biden who, on a couple of occasions, even hinted at it being about to happen. He said, we can do this, I promise you. Just before Russia invaded Ukraine, he said that. And people said, what's he talking about? Nobody could understand what he meant, but, but, or whether he was just sort of throwing out threats, as some people do, uh, perhaps to try and deter the Russians from what they were about to do. And Biden, of course, knew that. At that time, the U.S. and elite group inside the U.S. Navy had been instructed to work out how at considerable depth, and the pipelines themselves are encased in steel and cement and very thick and very strong, and if anything went wrong, there could have been a, an enormous disaster. Anyway, for months, they worked on doing it. Now we discover, according to Seymour Hersh, that they had to do that with the knowledge of several of the Baltic countries, certainly Norway, probably Sweden and Denmark, and very likely the UK as well. Why do I say the UK? Because on the day when it happened, Liz Truss, who was Prime Minister at the time, sent a tweet, which was later publicised or leaked, saying, we did it, or words to that effect. It's happened. Something, you know, I don't have the quote in front of me, but that, to that effect. In other words, she knew about it, the Americans were responsible for it, and she wanted to congratulate her opposite numbers in the United States on this great achievement. What Seymour Hirsch reports from his one of the, the main contact who gave him all this information was that this, as the contact said, is an act of war. That's why it had to be so absolutely secretive and nobody who was in the know about it was allowed to say a word. It couldn't go wrong, but he admitted to Hirsch that this is an act of war, and so it is. If that is the case, then that, to some extent, explains why it is that none of the Western mainstream media not in Australia, not in the UK, not in the US, and I'm not too sure about Europe, but I doubt that there's been anything there either. None of them has reported this story of Seymour Hirsch. So the Hirsch story is flying around the world on websites, on various blogs, and in various tweets and Facebook posts and so on and so on, none of which I'm aware has been taken down. And there it all is. Why our governments haven't even put out an argument against this, saying it's not true and coming out with something to prove that Hirsch got it wrong 
is just totally unclear. They are trying to pretend, or seeming to pretend, that it doesn't exist. Whereas the people of the world know it exists, and many of them believe it. As a result of it, there was, as I said, one pipeline was not breached, and I have no uh, detail about the situation with that, whether it is still able to deliver gas or not. There are two consequences. One is that Norway, which has exportable gas, stands to profit from this deal and probably is doing so already by exporting gas to Germany where they need it for the winter and and for industry as well. That is one consequence. The other, that if Germany is short of gas, you would think that they would be protesting and doing something about this situation. In fact, the reverse is the case because the Chancellor of Germany, apparently reluctantly, it took some time, came to an agreement with the Americans about this that they would simply bite the bullet, face the music, and import gas from the US and from Norway at whatever cost they had to, to pay it, pay for it. Because they're locked into this NATO alliance against Russia over Ukraine. And anybody, any of the NATO members who breached that solidarity at this point would come in for an awful lot of criticism, presumably from their neighbours. For that reason, I think the Germans apparently have decided not to go out uh, on a limb and uh, do something about this, which would mean exposing the main partner of, uh, of NATO, which is the United States. You've asked the question, Alison, has the D-notice returned in Australia? For those who don't know what a D-notice is, can you explain? <laughs> Most people under my age don't know what a D-notice is, but <laughs> those who do remember would know that the D-notice system is unique to Australia and the UK. The UK had its first, it's a defence advisory notice put out by the government to the news media to say, please, you know, in the olden days when everyone was, were gentlemen and they all sat down wherever they sat and agreed on these things and gentlemen's words were honourable. And so they were told things and then told, but you're not allowed to publish this. For quite a long time, from 19... It was done always during wartime, of course, done early in the First World War. And for a long time, that went on. In the mid-1950s, Australia got the same system and set it up. There was a defence committee in Melbourne which used to talk of about four or five representatives, and they used to talk to 16 or so members of the Australian working press, as it then was, I suppose, radio too. It, it, it worked. They had a list of things which they gave to the media saying, these are the things on which uh, we don't want you to do any reporting. And they mainly had to do with defence, logistics, that sort of stuff. But it it got quite interesting when they added 
you're not allowed to talk about the whereabouts of Vladimir Petrov and his wife after their defection. They were double agents. Uh, things like that were not to be reported on. And in fact, the very existence of a D-notice was a secret for a long time until that too was reported by, in the mid-1970s by a nation. That was when we, we really had some feisty um, news media. Nathan, Nation View, and so on, were absolutely riveting reading in Canberra at the time. They used to come up with all sorts of stuff. And some of the journalists who did that work are still around and they remember it well. But then the whole system, after Vietnam, the whole system really fell into disgrace and it was a joke. Oh, the existence of ASIO was one thing, but then the existence of ASIS was another. You weren't even allowed to mention the fact that ASIS existed. Somebody did, and so that was the end of that. And by the time most of their secrets were already in the public domain, the denotice system was quietly scrapped, or so we believe. Your question goes to my supposition, which is only that it's not based on any inside information of any kind, none. Not that anyone would give me any of these days. My supposition is that when you're on a good thing, you stick to it. The Brits have still got their defence security media advisory ESMA system, um, which is running. Ours uh, allegedly is not, but I'd be really surprised if it hasn't been replaced by something. And I would assume that it has its existence is secret until somebody reveals it, which they probably won't. That would mean that there would be a sort of an inside group of media people who have the confidence of the government, who get told things, and told things in advance of things happening, told things that they are not allowed to talk about, and then told how they may be able to let these things out little bit by little bit. For instance, what AUKUS really contains, what the Defence Strategic Review really contains, what moves are being made in preparation for war against China, things like that. Just small matters that might be of interest to the Australian public, you would think, but you could also understand why it is that a government wouldn't want everyone to be talking about them. Well, that was what I was going to ask you next, because it is March and it's the 18th month of the AUKUS agreement and also the War Powers Reform Month. What's happening with those two issues? Well, as you say, March, everything's happening. The AUKUS uh, agreement is to be announced. I doubt that we will learn much more from it than we know already, because they're certainly not going to tell us full chapter and verse, that will all be defence, security, national interest stuff. But it's as well as that, it is, of course, the 20th anniversary, exactly in March, of our invasion of Iraq. And so all of these things are coming together, and that actually brings a lot of people who are questioning these matters together to talk in various forums, and, and these are happening all over the place, all over the country this month. 
AUKUS, as I say, I don't expect that we're going to be told much, nor will we be told a great deal that's useful about this defence strategic review. It's, it's, it's a shopping list, and the AUKUS thing will be presented as a shopping list too. These are the things you're going to get. This is when you're going to get them, maybe. This is what they're maybe going to cost. But the most important question I expect, I may be wrong, the most important question is, why do we need them? What are they for? And you can bet your life that mention of using them in war fighting against China will be absolutely not on paper at all. It might be in the confidential addenda to the reports that the public doesn't see, but that is clearly the purpose, and they won't tell us about it because they don't want to discuss it. Coming back to the media, I will be very surprised if the media ask them if journalists actually say, what's it for? Who is it directed against? We need to know. Why do we need to be ready to fight a war against China, which isn't interested, as far as we know, in fighting a war with us or with anybody else. So what is this for? Those questions need to be asked. And, of course, then we come back to what you and I always talk about, which is war powers reform, because the whole problem with how we go to war is that the reasons for which a war is proposed are never discussed with the people. If they're discussed at all, they are in a very small group, National Security Committee of Cabinet, in which the Prime Minister can call the shots because the ministers there are all his or her appointees. Prime Minister of the day gets the nod from the United States. It's on characterising how it would take place. The Prime Minister then says to the National Security Committee of Cabinet, we're off, and there we are. Here's what I think will come out of the current review. Then there will be, that decision having been made, there will be a debate in the Parliament, and people will have an opportunity to stand up and vent their anger about this situation or their pleasure, depending upon where they're coming from, and ask questions about it which may or may not be answered, uh, or they may be told that is uh, national security in confidence that can't be discussed, but the decision having been made will go ahead anyway. Because one simple thing, and we have mentioned this to each other before, there won't be a vote. That is clear. Because both Defence Minister Miles and Foreign Minister Wong have said this month, that, or last month, February, that they don't see any reason for that system to change, and that means that the executive will continue to decide, and the parliament as such will, will have no say in the result at all. So there we are. But when you think what the consequences of this could and may be? The consequences are absolutely dire. The fact that we're not even being told that all of this defence and all of this AUKUS and so on is directed against China our major trading partner, with whom we share sea lanes for trade, which we now propose to fight over, the, the absurdity of it defies belief. You are left with the nasty suspicion that the only rationale that makes any sense at all 
for why this is happening is because every Australian government for a very long time has done whatever the United States wants. And this is clearly what the United States wants, and they will not say no. You're about to say, what do I think they should do? I think that what they should do instead, well, apart from reforming the war powers, which they say they won't do, if they have any responsibility to Australians and for our national security at all, is say to the Americans quietly and discreetly, look, we are not interested in fighting a war over Taiwan. We just want to let you know that. Because if you're planning one, you'll need a coalition. And sorry, we don't propose to be in it. Because it's not a war that is of interest to us. It's against our treaty obligations to the UN and to the, the ASEAN Treaty of Amity of Cooperation. We have treaty obligations not to threaten or use force in our region, and we should not do it. It would be illegal. It could let our people war crimes. It could make the Prime Minister and the, the generals who run the show war criminals. And we could simply say, look, in international law, we can't go along with this. And that's what we should be doing. If only we'd said this 20 years ago, regarding the invasion of Iraq, we'd said no. If only we had. Well, we did. I mean, I've just been, just been reading, and I recommend that if, if your listeners have time, they look it up, it's not hard to find. Read the speech that Simon Crean made in the Parliament on the day when John Howard told them that we were sending troops to join the invasion of Iraq, Simon Crean gave a wonderful speech, which really should be repeated today. And there's another one as well, going back even further. And they're both in Hansard by Arthur Cornwall, who was then leader of the opposition at the time when Menzies committed Australian troops to Vietnam. And he said the same thing, much more eloquently and at greater length. And it shows you the kind of speeches that people carefully made in the Parliament in those days compared to now, when Parliament is treated almost almost with contempt, you might say. And both of those speeches just deserve to be read and to be remembered, I venture to suggest, by the current government. Thank you once again, Alison. Jan, it's always a pleasure. And I've been speaking with Dr Alison Bradowski. Commons Conversations is a series of podcasts in which campaigners share their experiences and insights into activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. Produced by the Commons Social Change Library, it focuses on lessons learnt from involvement in First Nations, disability, AIDS, climate justice, wage theft, disaster recovery and other campaigns. To listen to the series, visit www.3cr.org.au slash acting up. Talofalava, Malo Elele. 
kiorana fakalofalahiatu kiora isa bolivinaka aloha mumenjeka and hello this is PX Fano on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, the voices of our community, talking Kwepasovka, talking us. Saturday afternoons, 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR. Join us as we share the stories of our diverse people, from arts and culture to news and opinions and information about our community, for our community. As a collective, we are all proud Pacifica diaspora, advocating for our people from the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. This is presented by the Pacific X Collective and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. In recent days, the communities in the Northern Rivers District of New South Wales, in particular, marked the first year flood anniversary. People still coming to terms with the devastation and the frustrating slow pace of rebuilding. Permaculturist Wayne Wadsworth, better known as Wadsy, was a resident of the area. And now, a year later, he's living in a totally different area of Australia, a little town called Iron Knob in the state of South Australia, which began as a housing settlement for miners in what was often said to be the birthplace of Australian steel industry. Wadsy, take you back a year. I know you weren't in Lismore itself, but you would have had friends there. Were you also affected by the degree of rain which fell in the area at that time? Well, I was actually up on a farm up in the mountains, so well, the mountains of the hills. We weren't too badly hit. We were just sealed in for about four days. The creek flooded and we and washed away the bridge. Plenty of food and there was electricity. The electricity didn't go off, so we weren't that badly affected. Um, a lot of the roads were washed away in our areas to get to Mullumbimby or Lismore about double the normal time. And quite a few of my friends in Lismore were actually lived in Lismore Heights, which wasn't flooded. So I didn't actually know anyone personal. I, well, sorry, I did know someone personal who did get flooded in Lismore, who was my accountant, who suffered greatly. He had um, some mental health issues anyway, and his children had mental health issues. So that the drama of that was pretty bad, and he was caught in the flood before that. So he suffered two floods and, and almost uh, within about five years, space of each other. And... The last flood he suffered, he was on a two-storey house and the floods came up to his floorboards. This time it came up to his roof. So he, they actually had to get out of the roof and sit on the roof for about, I think, three or four hours before they were actually rescued. Well, they were rescued by people who basically got in dinghies and rubber boats and, and went out and rescued people. The actual government service were a bit, um, weren't up to scratch, really. So a lot of the... Um, you know, public just got together and got boats and went out and saved people. So it is quite amazing. I, mean, if you, I don't know if you've ever been to Lismore, but, and it is prone to flooding. The Aboriginal North told the white fellas not to build there when they did, and they've been smart-ass white fellas. They said, no, no, we'll put them drainage in here, it'll be fine. And it starts, Lismore regularly flooded even before white fellow got there. There's places like many places in Australia that should never have been built on. It should have remained wetlands, which what it, what it was before they drained it and built houses. And we've got that same problem 
you know, many parts of Australia. So as our climate changes, I imagine um, we're going to have those similar problems in all places around Australia that have high rainfall. And um, you know, Queensland's a classic example too. Where they, they get hit just about every second year now with major flooding. I know that you've done lots of things during your life to do with the environment. When did you make the decision to leave the area and go afield this time? Well, I've been working in the subtropics and tropics pretty much all of my life, apart from either New Zealand, of course, but um, and we in Melbourne for quite a few years. But after that, I've been really working in northern New South Wales, Queensland, Cuba, El Salvador, Maldives. It's all tropical, subtropical country, so pretty much you put something in the ground and it grows, you know. You know, you barely need to irrigate it. You know, I'm no spring chicken anymore. I wanted a bit of a challenge in the last days of my life, so I thought, oh, well, I'll go. I'll see. I saw actually a thing on um, TV by, uh, I forget his name, a Chinese-American fellow who sort of does filming around the world on greening the desert and uh, some really interesting stuff. And I thought, oh, well, I'll trip round to have a bit of a trip round to a large part of Australia and see where it's probably a, an appropriate place where it might happen. So hence I set off about a year ago, probably a little bit over a year ago, and did one trip and came over to Wyala in South Australia and um, then went back and did a bit more homework and research and decided to come back to this area, Port Augusta. So I'm now in a place called Iron Knob, which is the birthplace of iron mining in Australia is where BHP essentially started their major steel building efforts. It's arid, what they call arid lands. It's not strictly a desert, but anyone that lived in eastern Australia would call it a desert. Very dry, very hot in the summer and quite cold in the winter. Um, high winds, burning sun, you know, things get roasted for about a month of the year. Very strong sun. So the conditions for Growing aren't exactly what you call perfect, but um, if you select the right species and design things using permaculture principles, which I think apply equally to the desert or to the tropics or anywhere you use the principles of permaculture, you can grow things. So I've um, I've transformed the block on one. I've only been here a few months, and I've got lots of um, mostly watermelons and pumpkins and those sorts of things growing at the moment because everything else gets fried in the sun. But um, I suspect by this time next year I should have bananas and pawpaws and all those sorts of things growing here, which are tropical and shouldn't really grow here. There's probably a lot of places you could have chosen. Why did you choose that part of South Australia? Well, it's what's called what I call the triangle, the Iron Triangle. So there's Port Augusta, which is Port Augusta's probably the biggest power generation place in Australia. There's oh, I think it's like 200 windmills, major windmills there, and they're just putting in some mega solar farms there under the um, windmills, and there's a uh, a big farm there that uses solar energy to desalinate water and produce tomatoes for um, coal supermarket chain. Wyala has the steelworks, which is one of only two still going on in Australia, and the guy called Gupta who brought that Indian fellow wants to make that green and use hydrogen to make steel. Um, so there was lots of good environment things happening here already. I sort of needed a place where, you know, these sorts of ideas can permeate quite quickly. And also there's a, 
Uh, there's a desert garden in um, Port Augusta, Trilands Desert Garden in Port Augusta, which started about 20-odd years ago, which is quite amazing. They've got about 20 acres where they've turned a completely vacant block into an amazing um, forest. And we actually just had the fellow that actually started the course did a um, workshop in in Iron Knob about four days ago. So really good to meet him. He's an amazing guy and um, gave us some good advice on what we want to do here and tree planting and design and things like that. There was lots of things here that made life uh, in dry lands as against, for example, going to Alice Springs or those other places that didn't exist in those sorts of environments. I mean, for example, Roxby Downs is quite a big town. It's everyone knows, you know, it's Roxby Downs. It's uranium, copper, well, biggest copper mine in the world, I think. And a large uranium mine there, that's quite a large town, and the mining company there is quite open to, um, you know, planting trees and that sort of thing. But there's no steelworks there, and there's no big power output. So the triangle here, as I call it, Iron Knob, Whaler, and Port Augusta, serve quite a few different types of technology that we'll need for greening the desert. Okay, but before we go any further, explain the concept of permaculture. Well, permaculture, in a very simple sense, is basically working with nature to produce as much biomass as you possibly can, and obviously food and things. But it's designing, I call it well, it's it's designing water, energy, land and localisation in an integrated way. So you need to integrate all your systems. So, I mean, the classic example here, our water actually comes from Murray River, which is about 300 kilometres away by pipe. So it's piped an enormous distance. We pay more than city folk do for our water, but without that water, there certainly wouldn't be an Iron Knob or a Wyatt or a Port Augusta, certainly not in the size it is now. The original pipe was built to service Port Augusta and Wyala for the steelworks. So they need a water for producing steel, and the consequences is obviously other people, well, the workers that are working there and the houses got water as a part of that putting in that pipe. But the primary reason for putting in the pipe was um, Wyala Steelworks, and during the Second World War, Wyala produced quite a few um, warships for the defence of Australia, major shipbuilding place in Australia for making military ships. They were making oil tankers and quite quite large ships. It was quite a quite a major shipbuilding industry in Wyla. The steel actually came from my knob where I live. Yeah, so look, in a nutshell, it's designing systems that um, maximise the efficiency of water and energy. That's why I would say you design your system so you don't need to bring in a whole lot of energy or water. For example, here, you know, when I'm putting in the gardens, I've been putting in trenches and lining them with plastic so I don't lose that water. Now, if I was doing that in, uh, you know, let's say Lismore, I probably wouldn't bother because the rainfall's so high there. It's more that you want to get rid of water and keep it in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Here's the opposite. I want, to, I want to keep every drop of water I can get. So I'm A, not having to pay for it, but, it, but B, just making the efficiency of that water so it's not being piped from the way from Murray River. It's the same principle, but you're going to do different things, you know, Permaculture in the desert looks quite differently from permaculture in, in Lismore. Who did you take with you for this project, or have you met people since you've been uh, there? I've met some interesting folk. I had a young woman from actually from Queensland who came over and worked with me for a while, and she went off and then worked with Peter. Um, uh, what's his name? Does the um, water stuff? 
Peter Andrews, yeah. And she spent a year with him and learned lots of things, and she's um, now setting out to do her own thing. So that was a, a really good um, person that came along working with me for a while. But, there's um, yeah, look, there's a lot of good people here. I've, I've sort of got in touch with some people doing dry land gardens here, and we've got our own community garden in Iron Knob. There's a few people involved with that. Actually, a young, or younger fellow than me, but actually escaped from Nimbin because he, he couldn't stand the rain and bought a house here. So he's been a real asset to our little group, and uh, he's working out today repairing tree tree systems and stuff like that at the tip. Yeah, there's, look, there's quite a good little group of people in Iron Knob who are keen to um, green the place up. But it's like any little town, you know, there's, there's the good, the bad and the ugly. It's um, no different from Nimbin or Lismore or any other town in Australia. It starts off getting a bit of land. Was that difficult? Uh, no, well, actually, fortunately, land is very cheap here. I bought a block for about $10,000. The same block in Lismore, would, even in Lismore, would have been 150000 200000 at least. Well, that's all I could afford anyway. But that was a bonus. had no electricity on site, which is good because I'll be going off grid. Has water on site, which is all I really needed, and there was lots of weeds that I've been turning into mulch. So there was a, a good lot of biomass here because, you know, a place that's had been looked after for a good number of years. So I cut all the weeds and mulched them up, and um, that's been helping me retain water and grow more biomass. I've planted lots of sunflowers just to brighten the place up a bit and to get some biomass into the soil. The big problem in the desert or dry lands is that there's really not a lot of biomass. For example, in Lismore, as I said, if you put something in the, gra- in the ground, it doesn't matter what it is, it'll grow and you can slash that, create humus and, and soil with it within a pretty short period of time. Whereas here, to grow a biomass tree, you're looking at two or three years to grow sort of things that will give you that biomass. You have to apply a substantial amount of water, which is possible, but it's not... Um, not really desirable. The gardens that they set up in um, Port Augusta, that took them about 10 years to get the biomass they needed for recycling. So once they got to that point where they had trees big enough that needed pruning every year, they're at the stage where they're making their own mulch and, and fertility for the land. But prior to that, they were bringing in a lot of mulch and, and you know waste weeds and all that sort of stuff just to get the biomass and, and uh, that you need and the carbon in the soil that you need to sustain, you know, big trees and, and forest. But once you get to that stage where you've got that biomass and it self-perpetuates, you know, trees will create their own mulch and, and quite quite a lot. You know, like I've got an old tree in my yard here. It was probably a good, no one's ever touched it, probably 20 years. It's probably at least a good foot of mulch under the tree, just self-mulched. And we're finding the same thing down the tip. A lot of the trees that have been there about 10 years now are self-mulching and you can take, after about three to four years, you can take the irrigation away. Trees will look after themselves because they're creating enough biomass and enough mulch and carbon and moisture to keep themselves going without irrigation. Have you done a deal with the local council? We're working on that. The nearest council is Wyala Council, but they don't actually control this town. We don't pay rates to them. We have our own little council here that that, that runs the town. And we just pay local local dues to that council, which are quite cheap. It's only about $400 a year compared to being a rate paying way out of about $1,200 a year. Our service costs are quite low here, which is good. But then we don't obviously get, we don't get takeaway rubbish or we don't have wheelie bins and, 
you know, those sorts of services here, but you know, people survive. What I mean is you've done a deal to plant the trees at the tip. Those trees went in about four years ago, four to five years ago, and they were planted actually by school kids from Waiwa. That was under, I think, under a government grant that they got and put that in, but they've been in for about four years. But we we don't need to do a deal with the Waiwa Council. If we want to plant trees, we, we just go to our local um, local group and say, look, we want to put some trees there, and they sort of discuss it and come back and say, yeah, that'll be pretty cool. And they're, they're very open to people planting trees. You know, they've actually got quite a few grants themselves to plant trees and set up gardens and things like that. So, you know, local people that manage the town are very open to new ideas and, you know, things that keep the town alive. We've got our own museum here, which is managed by, by the local um, group. And we've got a camping ground, which is managed by them. And, and they manage the rubbish here and they manage the tip and they sort of manage most of the town. So they, they do a pretty good job. They're all volunteers. They're not paid or anything, you know. Mostly retired, but say so they do a pretty good job around the old town, considering it's, um, you know, in its heyday, there was about 1,200 people here, and and the mining company had three full-time gardeners to look after the place. In its heyday, it was actually quite a busy little town with shops and, and stores and all sorts of things. We're, we're down to um, a post office store, and there's a bowling club that, sells alcohol and people go there and have a drink and there's a golf club that does the same. But apart from that, the pub closed about two years ago. It's an interesting place in that my guess is it'll probably survive because Waila prices have gone up quite substantially. Housing prices in Waila now you pay three hundred and fifty or 400000 for a very basic house, whereas here you can buy a pretty nice house for $100,000 and it's only half an hour's drive to to Wyala, so you know we're not a long way away. I suspect uh, if the new, there's a new mill going in, which will be processing steel or making steel from hydrogen, very high quality steel from hydrogen. And that, I think they're talking about two billion dollars. And there's a lot of solar and wind energy going in in Wyala to attract new industries there. So I think you know if Wyala does well, we all sort of ride on their skirt tails to an extent, but. Um, I think this little town, what I'm trying to really push here is sort of becoming a bit of a carbon sink, you know, like the mining companies just behind us. So if we can plant um, a good lot of trees here, we could become a sort of carbon offset place, like a carbon offset town. And and a bit of tourism. We have we do have quite a few tourists come here through. There's usually nine or ten in the camping ground last night, but average about two or three over the year, two or three people a year a, a night at the camping ground and that's that was again was developed by the committee here and that's um it's quite popular. It's um yeah, so it's not a bad little place to camp for the night. It's not, not the best and most luxurious place but um you know they've just put in new toilets and showers and all that sort of thing. So it's uh what's really neat in this town is just a lot of a lot of tree planting and um lots of good shade trees, you know, because as I said it's the camping ground there and uh, on a really hot day if it's 44 degrees it's probably 46 down there so it's, it's pretty blinking hot people will stay a night and then chuff off to way out to the beach where it's you know where they can go for a swim and things but um yeah you know, if we can get lots of trees in the place and, and do some carbon offsetting and potential for 
turning that carbon into fuel and things like that, I think that could be a big boost for the town. It's sort of where I'm I'm trying to head. So you know, we're just with it, we're in discussions with um, pretty good people now. It's all early days, but um, the fellow that started the garden in um, Port Augusta is a bit older, maybe early seventies, but um, he came up and did a talk about. You know, how he got the garden going, and very interesting fellow. It took him, it took him ten years to get it through council, and but eventually got it going. And now it's an amazing place where there's, I think, there's probably hundred thousand tourists visit there a year. You know, kitchens and cafes and um, nurseries and all sorts of amazing things here, and the place looks amazing. So it's doable. It's, but as you know, getting through government and council always takes considerable amount of time but he did tell me something very interesting in that um, when they built the steel mills originally in the 40s they actually put a dairy there a, a um, cow dairy for producing milk for the town and had the full scale irrigation there and it was supplying all the milk and cheese and what's of butter for the town of um, Wyala and eventually they decided to get all their milk and cheese and all that sort of stuff from Adelaide and ship it up but um, that went for I think about 15 or 20 years and was quite successful but um, he said to me the inf- there's about 180 he said the infrastructure and everything's probably still there and the steel mill is still pumping their um, wastewater out to sea so it could be diverted into a carbon farm so that's sort of where, what we're just looking at at the moment but as I say it's very early days but if we can pull pull something off like that we can um, yeah we can do some pretty some pretty good stuff, I think. Going back to the block, where do you get your seeds or your seedlings? From Melbourne, strangely enough, from um, Digger Seed. Yeah, and they do pretty well here. I've had a few seeds that didn't do well here, but all the watermelons and pumpkins and those sorts of things I've got from them. Actually, Joan sent them over. Joan Doyle. Yeah, no, and uh, sunflowers are all going pretty well. Uh, but the melons and rock melons and all this, I think, uh, are doing you know, pretty good, really. But, um, you know, we, we do have a community garden here and we do, they do actually have, you know, quite a few seeds of our own. But diggers seed, as I say, did pretty well here. But we, most of our production here happens from about, we start planting about April here for basicas, you know, lettuce, cabbage, cauliflower, tomatoes, all that sort of thing. We'll get a crop of them before it gets too cold in the winter and there's a couple of months of winter where it's the sort of the end of the brassicas coming into spring and we can, Keep those sort of things going till about October, November, and then from about December till about now, it's it's really too hot. The only thing grow here really is things like watermelons and pumpkins and those sorts of things that'll handle the heat. Tomatoes and that just shrivel up, and the cabbages, broccoli, all those things, they just can't handle the heat. It gets to 35 and they bend over and die. <laughs> what? I mean, how much water you pour in them? <laughs> What do you do about garden pests? They're not that bad here, actually, because I think it's because it's very dry here. Um, there's a little bit of fruit fly, moths, uh, a little bit of problem, but we don't use any insecticides or pesticides or chemicals to grow the garden. It's pretty much all organic. We just use a little bit of rock of phosphate, which you know, comes out of the ground anyway, so we're not using you know, any chemicals or fertilisers. And the soils. It's sort of clay, loamy sort of clay. So it's reasonably good soil. It's very alkaline. Well, we're trying to get a bit of acidity into the soil for things like brassicas and that, which refer 
acid soils, but obviously all the trees that grow here naturally are acclimatised to high alkaline soils, but your, your vegetable gardens need a bit of acidity to do well. And the garden was making, well, has made its own compost for pretty much ever, really. So, you know, they do a lot of composting there, and that goes on the garden. And um, Yeah, so as I said, we don't really have pest problems here. Probably the worst thing we've got here is ants. We tend to get plagues of ants come and go, you know. So, you know, you get a really good garden going, and the ants decide they're going to move in and feed on the compost. So it's a, our, our garden worms are ants. So ants do all the burrowing in the soil here and take all the organic material down below the surface for the trees and they, they, they do all that sort of work. We don't really have worms here. Um, we're working on that one. We're just, we've got some compost worms going now and that's basically been doing quite well. Worms need pretty of moisture, that's the problem. With ants, ants will survive pretty much. <laughs> Hell. What about native animals or rabbits, things like that? Do you have any of those? Lots of kangaroos. Because we've got a big military base next door who brought, brought out all the sheep farmers, they took all the sheep off the land and, of course, kangaroos came back and emus. So we've got quite a good emu and kangaroo population here. Well, we've got a few wild wild dogs and I think a few dingoes, probably not far from here. Plenty of snakes, lizards, lots of lizards, little blue geckos and um, blue tongues and things like that. Quite prolific here. A few cats, unfortunately. Yeah, just pretty much desert wildlife. I think now that the army's bought over there, obviously the kangaroo population will increase. The R is increasing quite substantially. Now I see that as a resource. I mean, I think... To be honest, I think it's far better to have kangaroos on the on the land and eat them rather than having cows stomping all over the place. It seems as though you're fitting in very well. If I rang you in a year's time, where do you think mm. you might be? Well, I hope to have this block really cranking um, with food, and I'd like to think that we'd be making pretty good headway on a major carbon project, carbon farming project, um, which would incorporate hemp, of course. And perhaps bamboo, I'm not sure about that. I'm still working on that idea, but um, certainly we'd like to be down the track of you know, having a pretty substantial group of people together to work on carbon farm, possibly here, or Waiella or Port Augusta, or all three. But certainly we'd like to have... Waiella's probably looking the most likely at the moment, just because you know the, the infrastructure... And the, and the water and all that sort of things there as a waste. So we've got wastewater to work with. We don't have everyone's got their own septic system here, so we don't have a you know, central place where all the wastewater goes. Whereas in Wales, they've got central locations where they treat the water, so you can you know take that water and use it for growing trees and stuff like that, non-edibles. I mean, the reality is, without water, there's not much happens really. Everything else is subject to the amount of water you can use wisely. You know, carbon, if you've got a reasonable amount of water, you can grow carbon pretty quickly using the right species. If you haven't got that, it's all pretty slow going, really. So, yeah, we'd like to be thinking that, um, you know, we've got a small group of us together now and it's growing step by step and we'd like to... My preference would be probably a project in well on a pretty large scale, maybe with a steelworks as a carbon offset project. Um, anyhow, we'll see how we go. They, they claim to be very green. We'll, we'll soon know. We'll know when we, when we actually have a meeting with them and sit down and see where they're at.
All right. Well, you've got a date in a year's time. Great. We'll talk then. Thanks, Wayne. All right. See you, Jan. And we shall. And that's Wayne Wadsworth. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.